You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. So over the next few weeks, we are doing a brief series that we've entitled To All Generations, and we're asking this question, how do we pass on our faith to the next generation? And uh, last week, we looked at parents' role in uh, passing on the faith. And uh, if you are a parent, I'm sure you have a lot of questions about that. And we try to give you a lot of resources uh, to help you figure out that question. How do I parent in a way that honors God? And I wanted to mention a, a brand new resource. We're actually doing a short podcast series right now on biblical parenting. And I don't know if you know this, but Creekside does have a podcast. It's called Habit Helps. It's all about building habits for the Christian life. I just want to take a moment to thank uh, all of our faithful listeners. The four of you have been great. Um, but, uh, but I encourage you to check it out if you're a parent. Uh, we really get into the nuts and bolts of parenting. I interview our pastors, different Creeksiders. I'm getting a lot out of it, so go look it up on the church website, Creekside app. You can search for it in the app store, Habit Helps. That's the name of it, and I pray it will be a benefit to you. So years ago, I was talking to a young man from Uganda, and he'd spent about half his life there and half his life here. And I asked him, what are the big differences between here and and there? And he said a couple things. He said, in the West, people revere youth. And in Uganda, people revere age. In other words, the goal in life wasn't for old people to look young or stay young. It was actually the opposite. It was that young people wanted to grow up and become old because old people were wise. And he said a a second thing that struck me. He said that uh, every adult was an authority figure, and every adult took responsibility for kids. He said, in fact, if I did something wrong, my teacher would discipline me, and then a police officer would discipline me, and then a neighbor would find me, and they would discipline me. Then my parents would finally get home, and they would discipline me for what I had done. You couldn't get away with anything. It wasn't just that parents took responsibility for their kids. There was this sense that a generation took responsibility for the next. And he said, Americans don't think like that. Psalm 145, really the theme verse of this series, says this, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Notice the psalmist doesn't say parents will commend your works to another. No, it's, it's bigger than that. It's one generation declaring the goodness, the greatness of God to the generation to come. So, so Creekside, what does that mean for us What does that mean for how we live as the family of God? That is the question I want us to think about today. For most of human history, and in most parts of the world, communities have been intergenerational. Extended families lived in close proximity. Community was thick. Elders expected to pass on tradition and values to those who came after them. That makes our current moment very weird, very abnormal in the history of the world. 
America is segregated by race, it's segregated by class, but it is also very segregated by age. One scholar has said this is the most age-segregated society that has ever been. Think about that. The most age-segregated society that it's ever been. Vast numbers of younger people are likely to live into their 90s without contact with older people. We're segregated, and the segregation runs both ways. Young people leave communities of origin, and where do they go? They go into cities to be with who? Young people. And old people retire to places where there are lots of retired people, so they don't have to be around young people, and they can be with retired people. And so the segregation cuts in, in both directions. There's actually a growing chasm now between generations. According to one study, just 6% of people over 60 said they discussed important matters with non-family members under 36. What does that mean? It means 6% of people have a meaningful intergenerational relationship, any intergenerational relationship, outside their immediate family. And of course, the church is not immune from this at all. Once society became industrialized, we started to segregate according to age, right? Mom and dad go to work, parents go to school, and society just sort of plots itself out in nice little neat age brackets. And now it just seems intuitive. How do you organize society according to age, right? And, and the church does the exact same thing. And, and the church often operates in this way that from cradle to grave, you get an age-specific group just for you so you can be with people just like you until you die. Now, age segregation isn't always bad, right? We have age-segregated ministry here at Creekside. There are benefits to it. There are also big unintended consequences. Because if we just mimic society as the church and become a community that is just as age-segregated as America, we will ultimately become a church that looks more like the culture than like the Bible. And eventually we'll actually go extinct as a church. Intergenerational community is not optional for the family of God. So why do we need it? How do we nurture it? I want to talk about that today. Todd Bolsinger wrote a helpful little book called It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. And you know, sometimes you're writing a sermon and you just have to steal things. And so I'm going to steal it today because that's a good title. So thanks, Todd. Um, discipling the next generation isn't just what parents do. It's what the church does. And it takes the whole church village to bring up those who come behind us. We, we tend to view youth ministry, right? Youth ministry is the thing the specialists do, the people who are good with youth. What I want to show you today is that the ministry of the church is youth ministry. It is always the older giving their life away to the young. That's what we're talking about, why we need it, how we nurture it. All right, let's pray, and then let's look at what the Bible says. God, your word says that your faithfulness endures to the thousandth generation. You are good from age to age. I pray we would take the long view as a church. Lord, and would you teach us to play our role in this moment in commending your works to those who come after us, that they would know you. Jesus, for your sake, amen. So need and nurture, let's start with the need. 
Um, let's say you're older. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe your kids are out of the house. And the question you're asking right now is, why should I care? Why should I care about the next generation? Why are they my responsibility? Well, three reasons, and they're from the Bible. First reason is this. Why care about the next generation? Because the gospel must be passed down. It must be passed down. The gospel, our core belief, is not something that can be reinvented with every passing generation. You know, sometimes Christians try really hard to be relevant, and they sound really silly. You ever notice that? Like, I got an ad a while back for a Bible, and it said, get ready, because this is not your grandma's Bible. And my first thought was, what did you do with the Bible, right? Like, oh, no. What am I going to find in this Bible? The, the gospel is not a brand. It's not a, a trend. No, it's a deposit. It's something we receive to give away again. This is my grandma's Bible. Actually, my grandma gave me this Bible, uh, which is Paul's Bible, which is Jesus' Bible. And in every generation, the gospel has to be recontextualized. It has to be reapplied. It is never revised, ever. Jude says that our faith is the faith handed down once for all to the saints. And so, the responsibility of every generation is not to reimagine the faith, but to hold the faith and steward the faith to give it to those who come again. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. Paul, talking to his spiritual son, Timothy, says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is Timothy's spiritual dad. He addresses the letter to Timothy. He calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Paul planted this church in Ephesus, and now he leaves Timothy there to establish the church. And notice Timothy's assignments. It is a generational assignment. Did you catch how many generations Paul mentions there? How many? I don't know, a lot. <laughs> Four. Four generations are implied in this. Paul says, I, first generation, am giving this to you, Timothy, to entrust a faithful man. Timothy, generation two, faithful men. Generation three, who will be able to teach others also, generation four. There's four generations wrapped up in Timothy's calling right there. Jesus calls us to make disciples of all the nations. I think you could just as well say he calls us to make disciples of all generations. Because the gospel needs to be passed down. And if the gospel isn't intentionally passed down, guess what? It doesn't stick. And there is this generational decay that you see gradually until eventually the gospel is lost altogether. I, I listened to a, a denominational leader one time reflect on how his denomination, he saw it in his lifetime, they lost the faith. And he said, you know, the first generation proclaimed the gospel. The second generation just believed the gospel. 
The third generation assumed the gospel. The fourth generation denied the gospel. That's the gravitational pull of sin, that the gospel goes from being proclaimed to assumed, to believed, to just assumed, to ultimately denied. And if it is not guarded, it's lost. The gospel has to be passed down. That's why we need intergenerational relationships. But you might have an objection to that. You might say, Jeff, that's great, but we've got the gospel. It's right here in Grandma's Bible that you're holding. So just tell people, read the Bible. Just read the Bible, and that's how the gospel will be passed down. I would say yes, but to that. Yes, but. Yes, read the Bible. I'm for that. Here's the question. According to the Bible, how do people grasp the truth of the Bible? How do they grasp it? It is not just a data dump. It's not just downloading information to your head. The truth of the gospel is not just taught, it is caught. It is lived out. And this gets to the second reason for intergenerational relationships. The gospel must be passed down personally. The gospel always travels from person to person, from generation to generation. We know this from experience, that we learn as human beings in two ways. Some things can be taught, some things can be caught. Some things are taught, some things are caught. I love the internet because it solves a lot of problems, right? I am not handy. Not handy at all, but that's okay because I have internet access. And I have YouTube. And YouTube solves a lot of problems, right? Like when I get the dreaded F20 error flashing on my washer, I don't panic. I just YouTube that thing. I get 6,000 videos on how to fix the F20 error. And I don't care. I'm going to avoid the warranty on that washer because I know the answer is somewhere on YouTube, right? And it was. It took me four or five videos, but I found the answer. That's a YouTube answer. There are questions in life that are not a YouTube answer, right? When, when my daughter's appendix begins to swell, I do not say, honey, we're not going to the hospital. Hold on, let's check YouTube. I'm sure some guy's got to have a video on how to do an emergency appendectomy, right? Let's figure this out. No, we're not doing that. Why? Because I want a surgeon, and I want a surgeon, and she better not just watch YouTube videos about appendectomies, right? I hope she's read a lot and watched a lot and actually done the thing a lot, so it's second nature what to do in that situation. You have to catch that. You cannot learn the truth of the gospel and the life entailed by the gospel just from a data dump in your head. The Bible says that the way we learn the faith is not just by sitting alone in the closet with a Bible, downloading information. No, everything in the Christian faith has to be embodied. We have to see it modeled and then do likewise. How did Paul entrust the gospel to Timothy? Did he just do a data dump? No, look what he says. Next chapter, you, however, have followed my teaching. What else? My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul says, you have learned and seen and heard and received and learned life with me. And what I am passing on to you is not just a bunch of facts to put in your head. What is it? It's a way of life. 
because the gospel touches every part of life. And how do we learn anything as humans? It's from people who come before us. You know this. Whatever mom and dad did at home when you were a kid just feels normal, doesn't it? No matter how messed up or weird it was, it felt normal when you're growing up. And there's a lot of, there's good things about learning from mom and dad. There's things you have to unlearn from mom and dad, but you learn it just by catching it. And that, and that shapes what feels normal in your life and how to relate to people in life and how to resolve conflict in your life. And the same thing is true spiritually. The people you learn from, whatever their normal Christian life is, you're just going to think this is the normal Christian life. Truth has to be transferred through relationship. That's why Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who came before you. Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate it. The outcome of their way of life, imitate it. So, the gospel has to be passed down. It has to be passed down personally. We catch this. It's a way of life. Now, you might hear both those things and go, Jeff, that's great, and that's what parents do. Great, bio parents, 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 go pass the faith on to your kids. And that's true. We spent all of last week talking about it. We just had a podcast none of you are going to listen to. And it's going to be all about that, okay? But, but listen, here's the thing. If we conceive of parents as not just primary for their kids' spiritual development, but solely responsible for their kids' spiritual development... Here's the first problem with that. It's absolutely crushing for parents. That's a responsibility parents were never meant to take on their own. It's like, I've got to keep this need monster alive, right? Try to keep them out of jail, keep, keep them fed, keep them clothed, and hopefully they can become a well-adjusted adult. And it's all on me to make sure they're an on-fire Jesus follower for the rest of your life. That is too great a burden for anyone to carry. You are primary, but you are not the influence. You were never meant to be because ultimately your family isn't the truest, most fundamental family. There's a bigger family that your family needs to exist in, and that's the family of God. God never wanted you to do it alone. He wants you to have help. What does Paul write to his spiritual son, Timothy? He writes, so that you may know how one to behave in, what does he say, the household of God. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a household. The dominant image of the church in the New Testament is family. Family. 269 times, Paul says, you are my brothers and sisters in the faith. Family. Now, when we hear that image, we need to be very careful. And here's why. When the Bible uses a metaphor like that, it's tempting to think that's a nice, cute metaphor to understand the church. And the church is like a family. So my real family is my biological family, and then the church is like that. That's the wrong way to think. When the Bible says that God is our father, it doesn't mean that God is sort of like a father. It means that the true father, the foundational father, the eternal father is God. And he heavenly, I mean earthly fathers are what? They're the metaphor. They're the image. They're the picture. They're like that, not that's like this. You see the difference? 
When we talk about marriage and the bride of Christ and us being in this covenant relationship with God, it's not like earthly marriage is the real thing, and that's a nice little metaphor. No. The real marriage is God's covenant with his people. And earthly marriage is just a picture of that. That's eternal. This is temporary. And when the Bible says that we are the family of God, it's not just a cute metaphor. No, because this family goes on forever. We've actually been brought in, grafted in to the triune family of God where we will live with eternity. That's the family we were created for. Earthly families are a picture of that family. Does that make sense? Now, what does that mean for your identity now? Sometimes people say this, that the church is a family made up of families. That's wrong. That's wrong. No, bio-families are part of the bigger family, the fundamental family is the spiritual family. Does that make sense? It's, it's not that bio-families are real families, <laughs> and here's this fake spiritual family. No, the spiritual family is the real family, and bio-families find their identity and purpose within that bigger family. That is a different way of looking at family, isn't it? Here's what it means. It means that all of us in the church, if we're family have a responsibility to raise the next generation. Paul says this. He says to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a what? A father. Treat younger men like what? Brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. He says they're all family. Older men, treat them like dad. Older women, treat them like mom. Guys your age, treat them like brothers. Women your age, treat them like sisters in all purity. That's a great one if you're dating, by the way. Seriously, if you're a guy, like how far is too far with a girl? Right, well, just treat her like your sister. Solves a lot of problems. So whatever you do physically with your sister, go for it. Right, there you go. See, just answered your question. You're welcome. <laughs> but, but here's the point. Paul envisions all of these relationships in the household of God. Remember what Jesus says in Mark 10, that those who leave father and mother and sisters and brothers to follow me will get back in this life, mothers and sisters and brothers. Jesus wants to give you a whole new spiritual family with lots of spiritual inputs and lots of people investing in that next generation. That's the vision. That's why when we dedicate kids here at Creekside, we ask the parents. We say, will you raise your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? They say, we will. But then what do we say? Congregation, will you cheer these parents on? Will you pray for them? You're not off the hook. I get kind of scared when I say that part because I'm like, oh, I'm on the hook now. I got to do this, Right? which means we cannot be indifferent to the spiritual development of those who come after us, even if they're not our kids, because guess what? They're in the family. You see a kid going astray in the family of God, you can't just go, I wonder how their parents screwed up. Just start Monday morning quarterbacking someone else's parents, right? Ah, that's what they should have done differently. No, that's your kid. That's, that they're in your family, and they're walking out of the family. You don't care? What family do you belong to? That's the question you've got to ask. And once we realize that the church is our truest spiritual family, we will care about the next generation just like we would if it was our own kids.
So how do we nurture that? How do we nurture that kind of community here at Creekside? I'm going to give you a bunch of things real quick. Paul envisions a community where the older and the younger are connected and where the older are constantly investing in the younger. That's why in Titus 2, he talks about older men. He says, be sober-minded. He says, older women, be reverent in behavior so that what they can teach what is good and train the young women. He says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He envisions all of this, these relationships, this nexus of relationships where old is investing in young. I, I like, it's a side note, but that he, all he tells the young men to do is be self-controlled. It's great. He gives all these detailed instructions to women. And the man, he's just like, I'm, gonna be a, I'm just going to be a one-track guy with just, just self-control. Okay, that's just, you're going to burn the world down. Okay, that's, that's all you need, self-control. Um, but what does it look like? What does it look like for us to cultivate, to nurture this kind of intergenerational community here at Creekside? Four things that we want to do, and then I'm done. If we become this community, there's four things we'll do. First, and this one starts with parents, we will build an extended spiritual family to invest in our kids. If you're a parent and your kids are still in the home, I want you to think about people in the church who you want investing in your kids. And, and here's our little our rule of thumb here at Creekside, and we got this from a book called Sticky Faith that we mentioned before. But, but they surveyed kids who stay in the faith, and what they, what they found is that they had several meaningful intergenerational relationships inside the church, outside their parents. And their rule is this, Every kid should have five adults in their life, in the church, invested in their spiritual development who aren't mom and dad, okay? Five. And so our challenge to parents is think about who you want those people to be. We, we do stuff with youth here at Creekside, and, and we want to have fun with our students, with the, the middle schoolers and high schoolers, and we go to camp, and we do pizza parties and stuff. But, but really, the core concern for us, for kids, particularly when they're middle school, high school, is that they have time in the Word with an adult who is spiritually invested in them. And that's why we've made the core of what we do in middle and high school ministry these little discipleship groups, same age, same gender, with a team of adult leaders who love Jesus, love the Bible, and love them. They have fun. But the goal is to invest in the word and pass down the faith. And the reason that's the core of what we do and the core of what we'll keep doing is that's what leaves the lasting impression on kids. Not the fun they had, but the people who invested them in the church. The big brothers, the big sisters who gave their life away. That's what I remember from being at Creekside. I remember fun. I remember going to youth group because I wanted to meet girls. I remember all of that. But what I remember most is Steve Demetrius challenging me to take my faith seriously and to love God with my mind and to challenge me to think through the intellectual credibility of Christianity and it changed my life. I remember Brian Nesmith calling out my hypocrisy constantly and challenging me to be honest about my struggles. I remember Rod and Julie welcoming us into our home all the time, ruining their lives constantly. <laughs> and being our spiritual mom and dad, and just being that safe harbor 
I remember Brad Bowers showing me what it meant to be a leader of men and to be both tough and tender. Like, that is indelible on me. That's why we do this, and I would implore you, if you have a kid, particularly 12 through 18, you need reinforcements. Please, we want to give them to you. Build that extended family. Second thing we will do is we will invite youth to the big table. You know the big table at Thanksgiving one, right? You don't get to eat there until you're like 30. The big table, you just have to be at this kid's table in perpetuity. We, we don't want our youth to wait till they're 30 to experience big church. In fact, we want our youth to experience life in the family of God from an early age. So what's normal to them is intergenerational community, not age-segregated community. Does that make sense? That's why we have kids sing with us. That's why we take communion at the front end before we dismiss kids. That's why by the time a kid here is 12 or 13, we want them to get a taste for just coming to big church because we want to give them a taste for life in the big family of God. Here's why. If you age segregate kids only all through their childhood, what are they going to look for when they go to college? Some new thing for college. They're not looking for a church. We want to give them a taste for the real thing. We want them to call them to serve. If you're a youth, you should be serving now. Go serve in kids' ministry, serve in AV, serve in greeting, serve on the worship team. We let people become members when they're 12 here, which might be a bad idea, but it's okay. We're going to go with it, though, because we want people to have a sense of what it means to be part of the people of God from an early age. It's another one of the findings in Sticky Faith that kids who feel a part of the whole from an early age tend to stick with the church. So we want to invite them to the big table. Third, I'm almost done. We will see kids' ministry as the high calling that it is. See, Sunday morning kids' ministry is the high calling that it is. At this point in the sermon, you might be thinking, Jeff, this whole sermon has been a ploy to get me to serve in kids' ministry. <laughs> and you might be right. Um, no, not totally, but, but, but here's the thing. The ministry in the church where I am most confident that you will have an influence that outlives you is our Sunday morning kids' ministry. Because it's not just about getting warm bodies to keep kids alive. What you are doing is helping to build the mental architecture of kids for the way they think about the faith for the rest of their life and what they learn from you and how they feel loved by you will shape their view of God and the church forever. It takes about 70 Creeksiders to have our ministry running for both services. We're not near that. I'm confident we'll get back there. But, but here's the thing. There's two ways to look at, at Sunday morning kids' ministry. We can look at it from what's most convenient for us. And then we can try to give the least amount of commitment, right? Or we can think of it the other way to say what would be most formative for our kids, what kind of experience could we give kids so they knew when they walked in every week, I am loved and adored there and I can't wait to learn about Jesus? Do you know what that would look like? That would look like a lot of Creeksiders serving. That would look like a few Creeksiders serving very consistently and coming in with enthusiasm because you cannot wait to give your life away to the next generation. That's a high calling, family. 
That's, that's something that outlives you. There are not many things you can say that you do each week that that's true of. That's one of them. High calling. Finally, then I'm done. And this is what implicates all of us. We should always be looking for big brothers or big sisters in the faith to follow after. No matter how far along you faith, guess what? There's someone farther along. And, and what Paul is clear about in Titus 2 is we need the older man, we need the older woman in our life. Who is that intergenerational connection in your life? That person that you say, and here's how you know who that person is. Just meet someone in the church, anyone you can say, I want to be like you when I grow up. Even if you're in your 30s or 40s, you just look at someone and say, I want to be like you when I'm that age. I want your marriage. I want your wisdom. I want your gentleness. And pray that God would lead you to that person. It doesn't have to be this formal discipleship relationship, but you do need those cross-generational relationships because the faith is not just taught, it is caught. You need those people who have walked through things you're going to walk through that are absolutely horrific, but got through the other side. And they're going to coach you how to get through them in your life because they're going to happen. You need those people. And here's what I would say. If you're having a hard time finding that person, the older person, it might be because you are the older person. Okay? I need a spiritual dad. Maybe you need to be the spiritual dad. Right, ladies? I need the older woman. Where's the older woman? May I just suggest... Perhaps you are that older woman. And you might say, Jeff, are you saying that I'm old? No. I'm saying that you're older than other women. But when we lose that and we opt for age-segregated everything, which is much easier, let's be honest, it's easier, you get generations that all have the same blind spots. They don't learn lessons. They all miss the lesson. And then they can't pass down wisdom to the next generation after them. This really matters. And we can't just engineer this. We need to pray that God would connect you to people that you want to be like. I have been overwhelmingly blessed in my life to have lots of these. And I can't imagine doing Christian life apart from older brothers and older sisters. It's not optional. Um, many of you had the privilege of knowing my grandma who, who went here for years. And um, she went to be with Jesus about seven years ago. And uh, if you don't know her, whatever you think of when you think of a grandma, that was her, okay? She was just, Loretta was grandma incarnate. That was her. Um, but one of the most poignant moments in my life was being there at her graveside memorial and her five daughters are there, and her husbands, and all of these, these grandkids, and most of them, the vast majority are still loving Jesus, still walking with Jesus. And, and what struck me was not what her daughters said, because I expected them to say those things. It was um, when each of my uncles got up, and to a man with tears in their eyes said, that woman changed my life. She gave me my first New Testament. She welcomed me as a son. 
She gave me a love I had never experienced. She taught me what it is to follow Jesus and love your family. And you know, there are these rare moments in life where you get perspective. And it was like this moment in my life where I realized that I have been so overwhelmingly, ridiculously blessed by God because of people making decisions before me and I get to be the recipient and I had nothing to do with it. And it was like this wave of blessing that I just somehow got caught up in. And I thought that spiritual legacy has saved me from so much trouble in my life and given me so much favor, and I had nothing to do with it. And I just think of when the psalmist says that Godless endures to the thousandth generation. I mean, don't you want that at your funeral? I'll, I'll end with this. Listen, our culture works very, very hard to form us into people with a short-term view of everything of everything. Our attention is commodified. We're constantly distracted. Companies work very hard at it. And society is constantly saying, look at this, shiny object. This is the most important thing you can think about, right? And then what happens the next day? There's a new thing. This is the most important thing you can think about. That's why they call it the 24-hour news cycle. You ever wonder what happened to yesterday's thing? Is it still important? We are discipled into short-term thinking constantly. Constantly. What's the long view? You know, people today will, will question the relevance of the gospel. Because is the gospel even relevant anymore? Does it speak to our day and age? That's a funny question when you think about it. The better question is, will you be relevant to the gospel? And the gospel story. Like, what if your ideas and your brilliant innovations are anyone going to care about in five minutes? The things that seem so relevant now are irrelevant tomorrow. The things everyone was concerned about in 1990, no one cares about anymore. People still care about the gospel. And 2,000 years later, it endures. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. I'm picking the gospel as the thing with the track record that's going to outlive you and your worldview and your ideas and your hopes and your aspirations. And so do you for something that's going to outlive you? That's the question. I do. Do you want to live for these short-term gains or do you want to give a deposit to the next generation that will resound into eternity? That's worth it. And if you don't believe in Jesus, that's the story you're invited into. It's the biggest story. It's a better story of Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. It's a story that goes on forever. It is the biggest thing you could live for. It's the story that, that you are invited into when you become a follower of Jesus to become the story of the kingdom of God, the story he is writing that goes on into eternity. Let's pray. So God, for each of us, I know there are different applications. But Lord, I, I pray uh, by your spirit, you would just bring to mind people in this next generation that we can invest in. And Lord, even if they aren't our biological kids or uh, Lord, spiritually we're one in you. 
and you call us to, to father and mother the next generation, and would we do it, and would we leave a great spiritual legacy, Jesus, for your fame and your renown. And we just trust, Lord, that you are faithful to preserve your church. Thank you for this unbroken chain of brothers and sisters who has given us the gospel. I pray we would be the next link in that chain. We ask it in your name, amen.